Welcome to the Saltwater Strangers Specific Series, a product of the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to academics, strategists and maritime professionals from across the region on the maritime security challenges and opportunities in the Pacific. The Saltwater Strategies Pacific Series is proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. We're a proud part of this Pacific enterprise and we're committed to keeping the Indo-Pacific free and open, connected, secure, resilient, prosperous and peaceful. It's an honour today to be joined by Brigadier General Clearfield, United States Marine Corps. Brigadier General Clearfield is a seasoned Marine, currently serving as the Deputy Commander, US Marine Corps Forces Pacific. Brigadier General Clearfield has extensive operational experience serving across the world in theatres from the Middle East to the Pacific. He served as the Military Assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defence for Asian Pacific Security Affairs in Policy and deployed as the Commanding Officer of the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit during their Western Pacific deployment in 2017. Brigadier General Clearfield is a graduate of the United States Command and Staff College and holds a Master's of Science in Resource Strategy at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces and a Master's of Science in Organisational Leadership. General Clearfield is also a graduate of the Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program. General, thank you for joining us here today on the Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series. Jen, thanks for inviting me and uh, just a quick good day, aloha and marhaba. General, to orientate our listeners, can you please provide an overview of the U.S. Marine Corps Forces Pacific? Sure. So Marine Forces Pacific uh, has a headquarters here in, uh, in Oahu on the, island, uh, on the islands of Hawaii. And uh, we have uh, administrative and uh, operational control over two Marine Expeditionary Forces. Overall, the Marine Corps as a as a service and as an institution is divided up into uh, fleet marine forces or operational forces uh, that deploy and conduct exercises and operations and then the supporting establishment. So of the fleet marine forces, we're divided into three marine expeditionary units. There's one in North Carolina, there is one in, uh, in California, and then there's one in Japan. So Marine Forces Pacific actually has operational and uh, administrative control over the expeditionary force in Japan and then the one in in Southern California. So between all three of those locations, all of us are within kilometers of the Pacific, uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. We we consider ourselves primarily an Indo-Pacific force. All these forces are allocated and assigned to the Indo-PACOM commander. And just as far as raw numbers go, in the southern part of Japan, the island of Okinawa, we have about 20,000 Marines and sailors and civilians. We've also got a, a few thousand that are up in more northern Japan in, the, uh, in our aviation wing. And then what we have is, well, I would also say, in addition to the sort of 24,000 Marines, and sailors and civilians, we've got 10,000 dependents in Japan as well. And then really, there's a workforce of about 40,000. That's a combination of uh, contractors, uh, third country nationals, and then host nation that support that unit. So I submit that that's a a bit of a large footprint. And then in Southern California, in First Marine Expeditionary Force, you're looking at a force of somewhere, you know, on any given day between 55 to 60,000 
uh, Marines. And, and of those right now, today, as we're speaking, they've got 3,800 Marines that are west of the international dateline. And about a month from now, that number will grow another 3,000, probably get closer to about 7,000 as we deploy a uh, amphibious ready group that's got a Marine Expeditionary Unit embarked. So day-to-day exercising with allies and partners, continuing to build combat readiness with allies and partners and ourselves, training and preparing for contingencies or crisis, and participating in exercises in the region. Thanks, sir, for the overview. That is quite a vast footprint. Throughout this limited series, we've focused on maritime security issues impacting the Pacific. What do you consider the key maritime security challenges impacting the Indo-Pacific region? Jen, I I listened to your previous podcast, and I, I think it's been captured, but I would concur with your previous guests. But, you know, specifically, and and I can't really prioritize these, but maritime security challenges in the region, security of trade and uh, energy transfers is, I think, really important to global commerce. Uh, The shipping lanes and the sea lanes that support both those things, you know, previous podcasts have talked about natural resources and their security, uh, subsea cables, illegal and unreported fishing, infringement on economic exclusive zones, and then piracy, uh, maritime terrorism, transnational uh, organized crime. I also think there's a a security challenge right now with the People's Liberation Army's Navy uh, increased militarization of the maritime domain in the region. But I think it's been really well captured. I would encourage all your listeners to listen to the previous podcasts because I think you've you have done a great job of uh, laying out what those concerns are and why they're so important to the region. Oh, thanks, General. That is very kind of you. We've had some uh, fantastic guests and we're, we're very glad that you can join us here today. Given that broad spectrum of security issues that are impacting the Indo-Pacific, how would you describe the role of the United States Marine Corps in the Indo-Pacific in dealing with many of those challenges? You know, in 2015, there was a, the United States came out with a cooperative strategy for a 21st century sea power. That was updated in December of 2020 with an advantage of sea that was signed by the Chief of Naval Operations of the United States Navy, the Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, and the Commandant of the United States Coast Guard. And I think what you capture in those documents and what you hear uh, repeatedly is that maritime security underwrites global prosperity and it preserves the values of, uh, you know, the democratic values of the republics that make up a majority of the countries in the region. You know, the challenges right now really is that's being threatened and we have countries that are getting put into some some difficult positions where they're being forced to choose between, you know, a coalition of countries and governments that support those democratic values, that the, you know, the leadership is turned over via election cycles. Or on the other hand, we've got a technologically enabled authoritarian government that is really putting pressure and trying to really change the rules-based order that we've established in the international uh, order that we have out here right now. As I've explained, the United States Marine Corps has a vast footprint uh, across the region. What do you see as some of the challenges impacting the U.S. Marine Corps forces Pacific 
as they try and operate in this region? You know, the challenges that we face are, you know, ensuring this regional security, Jen. And, you know, I just, I want to be clear too that I'm specifically focused on, you know, the two and a half million military members of the People's Liberation Army, who who really are the army of the Communist Party, which is about 85 million. So for us out here in the Marine Corps, this is not about the one and a half billion Chinese, that culture, or or that country at all at large. What we can increasingly are considering is the fact that, again, you've got uh, an army that works for a political party that it looks like from what I'm seeing open source after this 20th party Congress is really working for one person. I think that makes our challenges, you know, very, very real. We, we're, we're talking about a, a Navy that has 355 ships with plans to grow, I think, to, to 420. So if our mission is to uphold these international rules uh, based order and defend it, strengthen it and promote it, we got to acknowledge that that these rules and norms are under a growing threat. For a second, I'd pivot to what's happening in, in Eastern Europe right now with Russia attempting to annex a territory of another sovereign nation as part of a brutal war of aggression against the Ukraine. Uh, we've got the, the DPRK launching a number of missiles, part of a you know illicit weapons program, and all these things are you know threatening regional stability. Uh, they're violating multiple UN Security Council resolutions, and they keep just undermining key elements of our international rules-based order. And, and they're starting to now challenge the freedom of the seas. I think what we have is these increasingly authoritarian regimes that are redrawing lines on the map with no consensus or willingness or popular vote. They're doing it by might and force. And so this is a disturbing behavior, and we're beginning to witness it in the East China Sea. We're witnessing it in the South China Sea, and then most recently uh, in the Taiwan Straits. So, you know, the United States and her Marine Corps, we're a proud Pacific power. You know, U.S. Marines, we're, we're famous for our battles in World War II in the region. We're famous for our battles in Korea and Vietnam in the region and ever thus. And as you know, uh, probably a lot of your listeners to it was on the 12th of January 1943 that the first Marine Division, after a hard fight against uh, Imperial Japan uh, in Guadalcanal, came back to uh, Australia to rest, refit, and train, and get ready to to uh, to go back out again. So we're a proud part of this Pacific enterprise, and we're committed to keeping the Indo-Pacific free and open, connected, secure resilient, prosperous, and peaceful. Thanks, General. It, uh, it is, as you outlined, uh, an incredibly challenging region uh, and an incredibly challenging time. I'd like to dig now into some of the uh, details and some of your operating concepts uh, for dealing with those challenges. Would you mind talking to some of the evolving concepts in MAR4PAC that are developing around the employment of the U.S. Marine Corps in this theatre? Sure, I'd be happy to. And, you know, I would say before I talk a little bit about Force Design 2030 and our redesigning of, of certain portions, particularly of the three Marine Expeditionary Force, the one that's headquartered in, uh, in Okinawa, uh, but stretches also to Guam and, uh, and then all the way back here to, uh, to Hawaii. You know, 
part of this concept is how it nests with our allies and partners. So I'll talk a little bit about exponentially advanced-based operations, some of the modernization initiatives that we have that are going underway. But I'd be remiss if I didn't start with how you know our commandant, before he underwent this force design and came up with this initiative, he was out here as the commander of, of Mar 4 PAC. You know, and he 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 listened to what allies and partners, you know, were looking for really to contest this very, very aggressive uh, CMC apparatus uh, or PLA apparatus. And so our asymmetric threat to all these concepts is how accepted and and really, I think we'll talk a little bit in the future about interchangeable and interoperable they are amongst allies and partners. And that is, are asymmetric advantage, I would say, out here against these authoritarian countries. You know, in March, I got to attend PALS. Uh, that was co-hosted by the Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force and Marine Forces Pacific. And we had 18 nations attend in uh, in Tokyo. And in fact, at that, I met the ADF's very own uh, Commodore Paul O'Grady, who's a friend of mine, because in, in uh, the month of uh, August, I got to work for Paul. I was his deputy as he was the joint force military commander during RIMPAC. And and we're talking about an exercise out here, largest naval exercise in the world, happened around the islands of Hawaii and the southwestern part of the United States, 26 nations. And then in September, I visited Canberra and the Northern Territory, specifically Darwin, and got to see and watch and observe some of Pitch Black. So one of Australia's big aviation exercise. And again, you know, 14 nations uh, participating. So my sense, Jen, is I'll talk about what we're doing that, that's new, but we're not, we're not going it alone, I think is an important thing. It's not something that we, we made up in isolation. It was something that, you know, was, was developed, first articulated in, in, in 2019, but informed by what was happening, you know, in the region and, and globally. So one of the concepts, and again, lots of conversations about this with our allies and partners, is a, a global pre-positioning network, both afloat and ashore. Um, what we're looking at is how would we do resupply? So humanitarian assistance, disaster relief is a really big part of that. That's probably the big nexus. That's a commonality. Fuel, uh, you know, our, our petroleum oil and lubricants. And then we've got the other, you know, cases of supply. So where can we forward deploy uh, and pre-position uh, supplies for a crisis or a contingency? And then likewise, making it resilient. So part of it is a float, you know, maybe think console tankers, uh, but then part of it's a shore. So we've kind of got that, that redundancy. Expeditionary advanced base operations uh, and advanced naval bases this is really nothing new for the Marine Corps. It's part of one of our core competencies. Uh, it was written in the National Security Act in 1947. It was reiterated in, in legislation in Goldwater Nichols in 1986. But this is what Marines are supposed to do, is be able to seize and secure advanced naval bases. You know, the, the idea, the concept behind a, an AMV, it's a, it's a joint Navy-Marine Corps capability, integrates shore activities that are essential to prosecuting naval campaigns. So think about something that would provide logistic support that extends the maritime component, commander's operational reach, ability to maneuver, 
and facilitate uh, with sustainment as, as probably one of the critical nodes. So, you know, the acronym A and B uh, are sort of these semi-permanent, modular, task-organized, and, and self-contained. Expeditionary advanced bases differ a bit in that we are looking at the characteristics, the main characteristics of them being uh, survivable, mobile, lethal, defendable, and able. Really, a key part of that, too, is manage their signature, uh, really to, to manage the characterization of their signature so that, again, back to as we look at authoritarian governments with really high-tech precision strike regimes, uh, we've got expeditionary advance bases that are able to, to uh, survive within that weapons engagement zone by being able to characterize themselves as something that's benign. Or, you know, they, they could reveal themselves should that be what the, what the commander needed to do for either tactical or operational effect. And we were envisioning, you know, some, some modernized formations that would execute that kind of mission. So one that's designed to maneuver and persist inside a contested maritime environment, be able to conduct sea denial, uh, expeditionary advance base as part of this naval expeditionary force uh, in order to enable allied partner and U.S. fleet operations. So some of the functions that we would have in an EAB anti-air warfare, fires, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, information operations, operating forward arming and refueling points. And we're looking at the structure of personnel, how it's compromised. But what I just described really is the base elements. And then they would execute whatever that specific advanced uh, expeditionary base, whatever specific mission it was called upon to do, it would be able to do it rapidly. It would be flexible. And again, you know, task organized for a specific purpose. So it's a new way of thinking about a mission that we've always done is how I would characterize it. You mentioned uh, operating within the weapons engagement zone. And I read a little bit recently about the concept of the stand-in force. Would you mind uh, exploring that for our listeners? So stand-in forces are mobile, maintainable, sustainable, and combat lethal units designed to operate across the competition continuum within a contested area, operationally postured to support maritime defense in depth and support of the joint force commander. So specifically, we're designing these to disrupt the plans of a potential adversary and posture this combat formation uh, so that it's prepared to respond to crisis, rapidly project power, sustain itself, or fight to accomplish its mission, all while being shoulder to shoulder with our allies and partners uh, in order to deter our adversaries. So it's, you know, the unit's capability, capacity, availability, and readiness will all determine what its operational posture was, uh, Jen. But they are designed to persist forward alongside allies and partners within a contested area. And again, providing the fleet, the joint force, and those allies and partners options for countering uh, an adversary's maneuver or strategy. General, earlier in the podcast, you talked about some of the key threats to uh, maritime security in the region and the importance of the protection of uh, global trade and key supply lines. Looking at the recent acquisitions of the US Marine Corps, it's clear that you're expanding your capabilities in fires and uh, maritime strike. And I note there's reportedly an intention to acquire Tomahawk cruise missiles with a range of 1,500 kilometres 
and you've been testing out the Navy Marine Expeditionary Ship Interdiction System. Noting these potential acquisitions, what do you see as the significance of long-range strike capabilities in the Pacific and the relevance of these capabilities in achieving sea denial? Jen, that's a great question. If you could envision a, a force that can, you know, sense and make sense of, you know, the signals and uh, common operational picture, common intelligence picture that the joint and allied forces are are pulling in. So it can act as uh, a reconnaissance or a counter reconnaissance unit, really for an entire uh, coalition from these, you know, expeditionary advanced base positions. So the, the kit that we're outfitting them with, you know, the modernization that's going on will allow them to, you know, to survive in, inside this, this weapons engagement zone, but also to not only gain and maintain custody of an adversary's targets, uh, but also to hold them at risk if they had to be. So I think from an operating concept to the, you know, the military professionals that are, are listening to this or folks who, who know, understand this, you have to think about a, a small elite mobile survivable, lethal reconnaissance force that can basically get custody of an adversary target and then communicate that back to people outside the WES so that we can use our own precision strike to um, intercept or engage the target. But, you know, we're, we're U.S. Marines, you know, very similar to all the ADF, uh, SOF, and infantry that I've worked with. We also have to be uh, lethal and rough should it be called upon us to do that. So we're upgrading. You're exactly right. When we started force design in 2019, we had the Harpoon missile, which came off of one of our tactical fixed wing aircraft. And that's really what we had that could hold the surface combatant at at risk. So at the large scale exercise 21 uh, last August, we successfully demonstrated a, uh, a naval marine expeditionary strike interdiction system that we call, you know, Nemesis. And we fired two naval strike missiles from a uh, light tactical vehicle that was actually unmanned, you know, remotely operated. So that struck a moving maritime target over the horizon at more than 60 miles offshore. And then we've successfully done a Tomahawk land attack missile uh, from a single cell vertical launch system that could be mounted remotely and operated on a, on a light tactical uh, vehicle base carrier. And then during the aforementioned RIMPAC exercise, we experimented with two more. Again, these are aircraft, uh, airborne, you know, air-breathing lethal weapon systems. You know, an, an AGM-179 joint air-to-ground missile that was modified, and we turned it into a supercavitating JDAM. And then likewise, we had a JAGM that can come from our attack helicopters. So I think this bodes very, very well for all the things that we're trying to do to modernize ourselves. When in 2019, we went from one, and here we are in 2022, we've got four, and we're starting to produce these things and flow them out into the theater. So this is a lot about deterrence. It's about integrated deterrence with allies and partners. It's about building coalitions so that, you know, we can avoid war. But part of that has to be, you know, we've got to be strong. We've got to be robust. We've got to be able to to make sure that the adversary understands how lethal we are and can be. And I think if you combine that with some of the weapon systems that we have with our other allies and partners, 
you get this very formidable defense in depth that would be very, very hard. It would be a very difficult military challenge, I would say. You know, I, I talked a little bit back to logistics for a second, Jen. I talked a little bit about this global pre-positioning network, you know, afloat and ashore. But another part of this logistics, you know, is magazine depth and munitions. And, you know, we, we have a wonderful relationship right now with the ADF. We're working, working together on like platforms, like munitions, uh, and being able to, you know, interchange and use each other's not only weapons and systems, but each other's uh, ammunition. And I know that you had Rear Admiral uh, Morehouse, who did uh, the Queen Elizabeth with Marine Corps F-35Bs uh, embarked. You know, he talked about this idea of interoperability and interchangeability. And this is a very powerful thing, I think, that this modernized Marine Corps, you know, is bringing to the theater. You know, during RIMBAC, we had MV-22 Ospreys embarked on the HMAS Canberra. That's where they, they lived. That's where they flew from. Uh, that's how they moved around, you know, the, the AOR. And so, again, we've done similar things with the, the Japanese uh, Maritime Self-Defense Force, both with the F-35B and with the MV-22 and with our heavy lift uh, helicopters. And likewise, on our mobile uh, rocket systems, uh, we've done a number of exercises with both the Japanese and with the Australian Defense Force, where we've mixed these batteries together and done these high mobility uh, artillery rocket system uh, rapid infiltration missions, flew them into places, uh, fired them, and then uh, extracted them back out. And so that leads me to, I think, another great capability that I'd like to talk about that we've successfully prototyped is this expeditionary air and missile defense system. So we've got a medium range intercept capability that we tested in uh, at the New Mexico uh, missile range. And you know we're accelerating our, our prototyping efforts, but that weapon system integrated with what we already have uh, uh, in our electronic warfare ground family of systems, it's gonna make these expeditionary advanced bases, it's gonna make our allies and partners uh, very, very survivable and very, very lethal. General, earlier in the podcast, you talked to the U.S. Marine Corps' extensive relationship with Australia, harking back to World War II when it was used as a respite place for the U.S. Marine Corps. The last month has seen the 10th anniversary of the first Marine Rotational Force deployed to Darwin, a significant milestone in the relationship between the Australian Defence Force and the U.S. Marine Corps. As we have seen with the recent departure of the 11th MERF-D from Darwin, the rotational deployment has continued to grow in size, strength and complexity since its initial inception. What do you see as some of the highlights of the 11th MERTH-D rotation? Jen, thanks for the question. And, and I am a naval officer 100%, but I'm also a, a really proud Marine. And I would say, uh, if I were being a, a little bit uh, parochial for a second, the Marine Corps has aggressively pursued this positive and meaningful relationship with the Australian Defence Force and the Australian people. You know, our alliance is spelled out in, uh, in many documents. Most meaningful, I would say, is the uh, United States Force Posture Initiative uh, with Australia. That was signed by President Obama and uh, Prime Minister uh, Gillard back in, in November of 2011. And that's what directed this annual deployment of U.S. Marines uh, to the Northern Territory for 25 years. And as you said, we just completed the 11th uh, this month. So 
that force has grown consistently in number each year from from 2012 all the way up through to uh, to 2019. So the first two deployments were about 200 Marines each. That's uh, going back to 2012 and 2013, uh, and then it grew approximately to 1,500 Marines by by 2018. And then in, in 2019, it included we got up to 2,500 Marines for the first time in accordance with a posture initiative, and we've maintained that you know ever since. So this, you know, rotational deployment enables Marines and the Australian Defense Force to more effectively train, exercise, uh, operate not only bilaterally with each other, but also trilaterally, in some cases, up to four or five, six other partners working together to enhance regional security, build capacity and respond more rapidly to crisis and contingencies, you know, throughout the region. We take so much pride in our alliance with Australia. And that rotational force, that Marine rotational force is a key component of that cooperation that our countries have. We're continuing to look for ways to strengthen our security. And as one of our closest allies, building upon the strong foundation to maintain peace, security, and sovereignty in a region. I I can't understate how important we consider this obligation to both our nations. It's, I don't think it's too far to say it's something that's uh, sacred to us. So we're excited. Uh, we're honored. We love commemorating what's happened in the past, but we're super excited about the future as well. I, I think, you know, similar to our relationship with uh, the Republic of Korea, with Japan, uh, with the Philippines, the strength of our alliance just contributes to this, this regional security. So the United States committed to this mutual defense treaty, uh, the trilateral uh, AUKUS agreement, and then the interoperability, the capability, and the exchanges between the Marine Corps and the Australian Defense Force, I think it just really benefits each country's security, and it contributes to the stability of the uh, Indo-PACOM region. Thanks, General. You mentioned the future of MRFD. What do you see as the focus of the 12th rotation of MRFD in 2023? Jen, we're continuing to expand and increase the cooperation. So I, you know, I talked a little bit about some of our modernization uh, that that the Marine Corps is currently undergoing. You know, one of the things that we've done is, for the first time, ground combat element units are deploying uh, with an air radar system that we call the the TPS-80 Gator. So this last deployment was the first time that, that we did this. So back to a tactical application of our force that we're working with, you know, your first brigade up there in the Northern Territory, some of the key highlights of what we just executed, but that we're looking to repeat and even mature even more is this full constructive kill chain, leveraging our, our joint network and our, and our assets. So we used, you know, small group three UASs uh, to identify notional adversary positions. Uh, we relayed that information over, you know, a joint operating center via ADF uh, networks. And then the previously aforementioned HIMARS, we put that back in the one of the, the RAFs C-17 Global Masters. And again, had it link up with other Australian artillery units already in position. But we then used that C-17 navigation systems communicating to those HIMARS to expedite the target acquisition time. Also in in 2022, we deployed a a Marine Air Control Group that developed a multifunction air operations center. And that Gator radar was able to provide tactical C2, 
sensor services. And during exercise pitch black, it was able to disseminate targets of interest to you know, the coalition of uh, all the aircraft from the 14 nations uh, or 16 nations uh, that were there. So I, I think this multifunction air operations center demonstrates that we can quickly and rapidly deploy a scalable C2 node that's ready to fight tonight with allies and partners. So I think this all sends a really strong message to everybody in the region that the threat level you know, of a really pretty capable integrated air and missile defense. Um, These are the COCOM. The COCOM has requirements for us to be able to defend ourselves. And I think that's what we're seeing the beginnings of with the last rotation. And we're looking to mature that even more uh, with the next rotation of the MRF-D. So, you know, just to to recap, we had a a Marine air traffic control mobile team, uh, a low altitude air defense platoon, a Marine wing support squadron, and they set up a forward aerial refueling point. They also provided air-based defense, and they also uh, set up and secured an assault landing zone for the RAF during pitchback. So I think we can see both the Australian Army and the United States Marine Corps moving forward with these novel warfighting concepts uh, that demand that we were maneuvering the littorals. And uh, I just, if you can't hear my voice, uh, I'm super excited that we're exercising this, this common approach uh, with the MRFD, the 1st Brigade, and the allied and partnered uh, forces in the region. Thanks, General. That is uh, an impressive capability demonstrated in 2022 and certainly uh, an exciting future ahead for the MRFD. Is there anything else you'd like to talk to us about today? I've talked a lot about all the positives and what's working for us. But I think there's something working against us right now, and that's probably time uh, and the perspective of timelines to a potential conflict. I sense from my senior leadership in the United States, uh, and even from what I read from you know Australian uh, news media, is that leadership in both our country is concerned that conflict could come at some point you know, in the, in the future 10 years or beyond. I think that that's been openly and widely reported on. I don't think I'm saying anything shocking. It seems to me there's been a recent shift, though, on planning assumptions in both Australia and the United States that now we may be on a five-year or less timeline horizon. And so we've got a new, fresh look at a timeline to conflict and I just think that that is a, a, a significant challenge that we all face, that we've got to be really eyes and ears wide open, listening to you know, diverse ideas, understanding what allies and partners in the region, how we can all work together uh, so that we can avoid you know, some sort of conflagration in the near future that we know will be devastating and will benefit you know, no one, but that I'm confident that we would prevail in. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Brigadier General Clearfield, thank you for joining us here at the Saltwater Strategist Specific Series. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it. Our guest today on the Saltwater Strategist was Brigadier General Joseph Clearfield, Deputy Commander, US Marine Corps Forces Pacific. 
Brigadier General Clearfield has a distinguished operational career with the US Marine Corps, with extensive experience serving across the world in theatres from the Middle East to the Pacific. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing, and following the Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on our website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. A big thank you to our podcast sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security in the Pacific. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.